Dr. Prastana, husband, father, parishioner at Sacred Heart, is a uh, philosophy professor at Grand Valley since 1989. His um, PhD, he received that from the University of Chicago in philosophy. Uh, he's really big into the research of philosophy of mind, a book that I heard about a while back that I do actually want to get now that I have it written down. He's written a book called Moral Virtue or Mental Health. I think that would be a fantastic book. Um, who publishes that? Pardon? Peter Lang. Peter Lang? Okay. I'm going to write that down. He's also written articles on Thomas Aquinas and Don Scotus. So tonight to present to us is Dr. Mark Pastana. Thank you. Uh, everybody should get one, and there's more here. So Right now? Uh, yes. Okay. All right. Thank you for coming. I have an outline uh, of the whole talk, and it's very important that you get one. So I've made 175 copies of this, expecting a tremendous crowd. So uh, the topic is St. Augustine and the problem of evil, and it's uh, not an exegesis of the works of Augustine. It's uh, an exegesis of his solution to the problem of evil and uh, how that uh, uh, develops over the millennia. He, he lays the groundwork that uh, is uh, used by all subsequent Christian thinkers with respect to the problem of evil. And uh, you even find elements uh, of his solution in uh, Jewish and Muslim thinkers. And, uh, well, we'll see what he has to say about it. He's the Latin father of the church, the most famous of the Latin fathers of the church. He uh, lives from roughly 350 to 430 A.D. And, uh, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, uh, Augustine's solution to the problem of evil uh, is it's not the best way to put it because uh, the only solution to the problem of evil is going to occur when Christ returns and abolishes evil altogether. So it's uh, a solution in theory or a theoretical solution to the problem of evil. Okay, does everyone have an outline of the talk tonight? Okay, uh, what is the problem of evil? That's the uh, first question. Why does evil exist? Where does it come from? And this is a problem, especially for the revealed religions. Why, we'll see in a second. But it's a problem for everyone. Why does evil exist? Why do, we, why do we suffer evil? But it's especially a problem for the revealed religions. You can see here in number one here. Uh, because, and here's the argument. And it's important that we all get this argument down pat because this is the standard argument that is now being used by uh, atheists and promoters of atheism against belief in God. Okay, Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist who... Uh, passed away recently, uh, has a book entitled, God is Not Good. Okay? And Richard Dawkins, has uh, him, another uh, quite famous atheist who's still with us, has uh, uh, said that uh, it's uh, simply impossible that God exists because there's so much uh, evil in nature. Okay, now the argument, uh, it's a five-step argument you can see here. God is infinitely good, absolutely loving, omniscient, omnipotent, the classic divine attributes. Uh, entails Proposition 2, uh, God can eliminate evil, 
Okay, this is the standard argument uh, uh, against uh, the revelation. And uh, Augustine, in effect, articulates the basic response on the part of uh, Christians to this uh, type of argument. Now, in order to understand what Augustine is doing, we've got to go back, uh, in a sense, before Augustine. There's, there's several sort of general categories of answers to the question, uh, why is there evil? The first is uh, fortunately not a very common uh, uh, response to the problem of evil. And it's uh, say, well, you know, why is there evil? Because existence itself is evil. Okay, so end of, end of discussion. Uh, some forms of Buddhism uh, come close to this. Okay, that uh, the thirst for being in Buddhism is the origin of all suffering. Uh, Hegesius of Cyrene, the Hegesius of Cyrenaic, was a Greek philosopher, lived in the, flourished in the third century BC. Uh, he taught that life was valueless. Uh, he encouraged people to kill themselves. He thought that pleasure was the only good, but pleasure was not achievable. And his most famous uh, book is called Death by Starvation. Uh, and now uh, uh, we have a fellow, maybe some of you know this uh, chap, David Benatar. He teaches philosophy at one of the universities in South Africa. And uh, he has uh, uh, several uh, videos uh, on YouTube. He's got a YouTube site. And uh, he is uh, championing uh, kind of a movement uh, against life. It's, uh, but it's against all forms of life. He, he argues that uh, sentience is evil. The best thing that could happen uh, in the universe would be for the human race and all uh, sensory or uh, animals capable of sensation if they simply pass out of existence. Okay, so uh, it's kind of an extreme view. Uh, and like I said, there aren't a lot of people who uh, take this uh, position. A more common uh, approach to the problem of evil is to part B here, ancient answers to the problem, uh, general problem part B. And this is the idea that good and evil are two uh, co-equal uh, fundamental principles. They're, they're equal in power, they're equal in uh, force, the force that they exert, and they are eternally at battle. And uh, there's a couple of uh, ways of doing this. It's, uh, this is uh, the force of uh, good uh, uh, the, or the good God and this is the evil God and there's evil in the world that we uh, inhabit because uh, these two principles or gods are uh, battling it out. So why is there evil in the world? Well, because this is ultimately what's going on. And uh, in this conception, a good uh, cannot conquer evil. Okay, that uh, one of them is not going to conquer the other. The struggle is just going to go on forever. And what are, what are the famous uh, uh, exponents of this view? Uh, the most famous is uh, Zarathustra or Zoroaster, uh, was a Persian, a Persian uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, mystic, lived in the 7th century, 6th uh, century before Christ. And uh, 
had some kind of mystical experience where he apprehended uh, this and then worked out this elaborate cosmology with gods and demigods and urges and demiurges. Uh, this was picked up by Manny, another Persian, uh, 800 years after Zarathustra, who tried to combine uh, Zoroastrianism with Christianity and uh, developed a, a, a form of Christianity that uh, became known as Manichaeism. This was quite popular and spread quite far. It uh, spread uh, all across the Mediterranean, spread into northern India and even China. And uh, very, again, uh, this is the basic uh, idea of it uh, as an explanation for evil. I mention that especially in connection with Augustine because for a while Augustine himself was a Manichaean. He embraced this uh, philosophy, this religion, and it was part of his uh, journey, one of the stages in his journey to Christianity. Uh, Manichaeism is included in the Gnostic uh, versions or variants on Christianity. The, the Gnostics add a little bit different, uh, or many of the other Gnostic uh, branches of Christianity add a slightly different take on this, that uh, uh, God is uh, uh, the creator, but the God creates out of some uh, pre-existing uh, uh, material chaos, and it's a, a kind of a, a, a mattered stuff that God works up into the world that we inhabit, but God does not create this stuff. And uh, this uh, matter that God makes the world out of is recalcitrant to a certain extent to God's will. So where does evil come from? Well, evil ultimately comes from this stuff that God cannot work up well enough to get rid of the evil. Okay, now... Uh, this gets picked up on by the Cathars or the Cathari, which was a kind of a revival of uh, Manichaean Gnosticism, I guess you could say. It's hard to make sense out of these uh, doctrines because they seem so uh, incoherent. But uh, uh, the Cathari were popular in southern France during the 12th to 14th century and uh, articulated a view uh, very uh, similar to this. Uh, the, a crusade was conducted against the Cathari and they were uh, exterminated, basically. But uh, the Nazis were very interested in the Cathari and they sent an expedition to the Cathar uh, uh, lands and they visited the final Cathar, Cathar stronghold. Uh, Jacob Burma, uh, another uh, oddball here, uh, a German mystic, uh, had uh, very strange experiences that result in some kind of outlook like this. And I think uh, a more naturalistic version of this is the uh, kind of yin-yang uh, uh, principles you get in uh, Chinese thought that uh, uh, yin and yang are... Uh, in a way, good and evil, positive and negative, attractive, repellent forces, and that uh, reality is constituted out of a, a, a sort of a good force and a bad force, or a good principle and an evil principle, and uh, the, uh, we, we have to be careful here, because uh, according to this, or the, you, know, you get the Star Wars uh, the dark side of the force. I mean, there's the force when there's the light side or good side of the force, and then there's the dark or bad side of the force. And uh, the, the point of these conceptions is that reality itself is constituted out of this sort of positive and negative principle. Okay, 
Now, I mentioned that because for, for two reasons. One, if this is the conception, then the negative principle or the evil principle starts to seem all that, not all that evil. If it's essential to the constitution of reality, if it's necessary to reality, then it's just the other side of, of reality. Okay, keep that in mind, because this is a view that Augustine is going to explicitly reject. Uh, okay, third of the ancient answers to the general problem here is that evil is uh, an hallucination. It's, it's a complete illusion. There is no such thing at all. Uh, and if you could only get the proper perspective on reality, poof, all evil would disappear. You'd see there, it's not there. It's not there at all, in any sense whatsoever. Okay. Now, again, uh, uh, some forms of Hinduism uh, uh, seem to appro approximate to, to this. Uh, I think perhaps the best uh, example of this is uh, Spinoza's uh, philosophy. He was a 17th century uh, rationalist uh, philosopher. He was uh, uh, a Jew, but he was excommunicated by the rabbis in Amsterdam, and a curse was put on him by them actually, but uh, in his uh, conception, uh, everything that happens is absolutely necessary. Nothing can be other than it is. Every possibility is actualized. There's no chance or, or possibility that things could be other than they are. And once you realize that, you realize there is simply is no such thing as evil. Everything is as it must be. Okay, that's not any of Augustine's views. The, 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 the views that Augustine is responding to are these uh, in the second category here, that good and evil are two fundamental principles equal in power. Okay, that was Manichaeism was very prevalent in Augustine's day, and he develops this Christian theodicy, uh, as it's come to be called, in response to the, the Manichaean uh, worldview. Okay, part three here on the outline. Augustine developed the Christian theodicy. Now, that wasn't the name Augustine used. In fact, that name comes from a book by Leibniz, uh, Gottfried Leibniz, a German philosopher. Uh, the book came out in 1710. And it comes from two words, theos, God, and dike, uh, the Greek for justice. Okay, so it means the justification of God. Okay, so how are we going to justify God Granted all the evil, how are we going to justify this good God? Granted all the evil we encounter around us. Right? Now, right off the bat we have problems here. Note, Calvinism and Islam hold that God's ways are beyond human ways and our justice is not like God's justice at all. Therefore, God and his ways are beyond our comprehension. In other words, we have no business trying to justify God. Okay, so the Calvinists and the, and the Muslims after a certain period in the history of Islam are going to say uh, the very idea that you're trying to get this project off the ground is, is off. Okay, you got no business justifying God to anybody. Okay, there's evil in the world. Why is there evil in the world? It, it is the will of Allah. End of discussion. Okay, so there's no problem of evil. All right, that's not Augustine's approach. All right, so what does Augustine do? Uh, in various writings, okay, I'm taking this from snippets here, there, uh, and everywhere in his writings, and uh, City of God is his most famous work, his Confessions, uh, his uh, work on uh, free will, 
and his commentaries on uh, the Psalms and on the Gospel of John. Okay, so um, he's, they're bits and pieces. He was not a systematic thinker in the sense of putting together a, a grand synthetic system that has uh, uh, all the bits and pieces put together neatly, like you get with Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but in the course of his writings, or, and some, some of his sermons, uh, he introduces all the elements that go into the standard Christian theodicy. Okay, now, what are those elements? First, God is infinitely, absolutely good, and all that God has created is good. All right? So you don't have two principles here. Okay? The supreme being is supremely good, and there uh, isn't some other force uh, counteracting God. Okay? Well, then what is evil? If everything God creates is good, and God is infinitely good, what is evil? Second point here. We've got to put a circle around this. Evil is not some kind of entity. It's not a thing. It's not a substance. It is not a principle of being. It has no existence in itself. It's not an illusion. He's not saying that. All right? It is not some God or principle or force that's equal in power to the one true God. Well, what is it then? Well, he says, evil is an absence of good. It's a lack of entity. It's an absence of void and non-being. Okay, something's missing. Evil is parasitic upon the good. It is a corruption of what already has being. Okay, now he's getting this idea from uh, Scripture, of course, and uh, Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is the name given to a philosophy uh, developed by one of Plato's ma- most famous followers, uh, Plotinus. Now, for a while, uh, Augustine himself was a follower of Plotinus. He was a Neoplatonist. So he, what he does is he appropriates the Greek philosophical lexicon as developed by Plotinus and uses it to explain uh, God's ways. Look, uh, I say, uh, what is, what, evil is an absence of good. Okay. What's the analogy? The analogy he uses is light and shadow. It's not as though you have two things there. Here's light and here's shadow. And you mix them together to get what we see. It's, you have light and then you have an absence of light, which is a shadow. Same thing is true with heat and cold. You don't have two things. The old theory, the, the, the old chemical theories, uh, you did have two substances. You had some heatness and some coldness, and everything that we experience is a mixture of a bit of both of these. Okay. Now, uh, Lavoisier, uh, the great chemist, uh, uh, over, overthrew that, uh, overturned that conception of how heat works. And now the view is that, well, there's, there's heat, and a cold is an absence of heat. It's not as though cold is something else besides heat. Okay. Well, if evil is an absence or a lack or a privation of being, aren't there evil things? Yes, of course there are evil things. There are things that lack being. There are things that lack goodness. They're missing something they're supposed to have. Okay. Now, here's my... I don't want to get to... Uh, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous, but uh, uh, let's say uh, we've got our wheel here. It's an, it's an old uh, uh, solid wheel, uh, wagon wheel. 
and uh, it's a pretty good wheel. We, we went to the wheel right, and uh, he made us a, a, a very good wheel. It's a good, good wheel. Okay. Well, what makes it a good wheel? Well, it's so perfectly round. This is the most round wheel we've ever had. Our wagon is working better than it's ever worked before. Okay. Uh, now, what happens is we, we, we're, we're taking it down these roads in, in Michigan, and uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> the uh, uh, the the wheel is uh, it's, it's not such a good wheel anymore. Okay, why isn't it a good wheel anymore? It's a it's a really bad wheel. It's a crummy wheel. It's an evil wheel. Okay. Well, what is it that makes it a bad wheel? Well, it's missing what makes a thing be a wheel in the first place. Okay. I it makes I think it makes perfectly good sense. It's not a good wheel because it's out of round. And roundness is what constitutes a thing being a wheel in the first place. Now, if, it, uh, if it's enough out of round, uh, we went to the other uh, wheelwright, and uh, something's not quite right with him, but this was the wheel he gave us. Uh, uh, no, it's, that's not going to work at all. Okay? There's no roundness to it at all, so it simply doesn't exist as a wheel at all. Okay, does this make sense? You see how different this is from the Zoroastrian view. Okay, Zoroaster says, no, you've got these two things there, good and evil, and they're battling it out. And Augustine says, the metaphysics, it's, it's, it's wrong from the get-go. Reality doesn't work that way. You've got being. Okay, and then when, when things are deficient in their being, that's when evil, or that's simply what evil means. He's, he's going to say that something like this is happening uh, in, in every type of evil that we encounter. All right? Now, it's going to, it's going to be hard to work that, but let's see uh, a couple of notes here I want to uh, call your attention to before we pass on. Note, first, no thing is perfectly evil. Okay? There, can, there cannot be something that is supremely evil in the sense that it's just evil. Okay. Why not? Because everything that is, is good insofar as it is a being. If a thing were completely evil, it simply wouldn't exist at all. Okay. That's what was true with the wheel thing. If the thing loses what makes a wheel be a wheel enough, it's not just a bad wheel, right? It ceases to be a wheel altogether. Well, just amplify that across the whole of being. That's how the whole system works. Okay. So, even Lucifer is good insofar as he exists. Okay, Augustine says this. Okay. Though he is the most evil of all creatures. In other words, he's the most defective in being. And it's, it's quite powerful. Okay. okay. He'd be much more powerful if he weren't so defective. Uh, second note, there is a thing that is perfectly good. Of course, that's God. And creation could be perfectly good as the type of being that it is. Creation can't be good the way God is good because God is absolutely and unlimitedly good. But the created world, the whole created universe, could be uh, perfect uh, for what it is. Okay, is all right so far? Now, he says there are three types of evils. 
Okay, hang on for one second. I got the pages out of order. Should be number four. Right? Yes. It says metaphysical evil? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think that guy we had designed the wheel organized my uh, papers for me here. Uh, okay. Metaphysical evil, this is an odd name. It's the name that uh, philosophical theologians uh, give to this type of evil. What is it? It's the absence in a thing of a perfection in its being that is natural to a thing of that type. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Okay. Well, uh, look at the examples here. This is uh, my favorite example of the acorn. It's actually Aristotle's example. Uh, For example, the acorn that fails to turn into an oak tree. All right, well, what is an acorn? Well, it's a thing that by its very nature will become an oak tree. So if you were to ask, you know, what would it mean for the acorn to be all that the acorn can be? For the acorn to fully realize its being, to fully actualize all its uh, potentialities, well, it would be for it to turn into an oak tree. Okay, so that's what they'd say is that that is the perfection in being of an acorn, is to become an oak tree. Okay, so then now just take that and uh, say, well, that's how the whole system works. Okay, so well, what happened to that acorn? Well, it was eaten by a squirrel. Well, what's the squirrel doing? Well, the squirrel's just doing the squirrel thing. Is to, the, the squirrel is trying to become uh, perfect in its way of being, which is uh, to just be a squirrel. Okay, the squirrel is developing, it's growing, uh, but it didn't make it either because it was eaten by a martin. Okay, well, what's that martin doing? The martin is just doing exactly the same thing. The martin is trying to be what a martin is. And to be what a martin is in all the ways, uh, in the fullest way that a martin can be a martin. Okay, and then the martin gets trapped by Mr. Tober and uh, his skin gets sold. And why, why does Mr. Tober do that? Well, he's doing the human thing. Okay, Uh, now, does that make sense what we got so far here about this notion of metaphysical evil? So a metaphysical evil is is just, it's the privation uh, of being in a being that it's it's supposed to have. I think that was the worst sentence I ever formulated in my life. Uh, Does that make sense? Okay, now, here we go back to the original argument. Remember? If God is good, God would prevent all these evils in the world. All right? Now we're, not, we're talking about metaphysical evil, and we know what evil is. Evil is a privation of being. Why does God permit such evils to occur? Okay? If God was good, like you Christians say he is, uh, wouldn't he prevent such evils from occurring? Of course not. Why not? Why does God permit such evils to occur? Because that is precisely how the system of nature works. And there are these splendid passages in Augustine where he's talking like a contemporary uh, biologist uh, about ecosystems. Okay. The whole system of nature is a vast interconnected network of an infinite variety of things. Each is striving to realize its nature. It has to do that by incorporating other things into it and preventing them from realizing their natures. 
Okay, that's just how the whole ecosystem works. He doesn't use that term, but uh, every type of creature has its place in the system and its role to play. And that involves virtually none of these things being all that they can be. Okay, so here's this magnificent oak tree. Over the course of its life, it produces, I don't know, 100 million acorns. How many of these, those acorns turn into magnificent oak trees? One. Okay, maybe. Well, what do the rest of the acorns do? Well, they rot and, 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 and fertilize the forest floor, or they're eaten by other animals, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything fits together perfectly. Augustine has these passages where he talks about mosquitoes and these awful bugs that we hate so much, and then he says, look, they have their place in the scheme of things. Okay, if we could see the whole system in operation part B here, if somehow we could, we could get the whole thing in our view, he says we'd see the beauty of it. It's perfect, the way the whole thing fits together, every part, every other part, this animal decomposes and it turns into this animal, this plant decomposes, it turns into these plants, I mean the thing is just magnificent. Uh, the ugly dark parts, so he uses this analogy, of a painting contribute to its whole beauty. The single discordant notes are harmonized with the piece of music as a whole. Those are two analogies he uses. And if God were to eliminate metaphysical evils, then much that is good would not exist. Okay? So the principle we're getting at here is that God brings much good and much being out of these sorts of deficiencies in being. So you get this whole system because each of the little bits and pieces is deficient in being in some way. Okay, does it make sense? I, I think he, he does a good job with it. What's the difference between that and saying there is no evil? What's that? What's the difference between that and saying evil is an illusion? If you look at everything rightly, you would see there is no evil. There's evil in the sense of deficiencies in being. Okay, so... It's like, it's like blindness. In what sense does blindness exist? Blindness is not uh, a thing. Okay. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It exists as a lack of a power. Okay. Is that all right? A, a lack of an appropriate power. Is that okay? All right. So the first, first part of the solution is, is laid out. All right? These metaphysical evils uh, have to exist because that's the only way you're going to get a complex system of nature with a variety of bits and pieces to it. I mean, if every single acorn turned into a magnificent oak tree, it, it, it would take, uh, you know, 400 years and the, and the whole universe would be filled with oak trees. Okay. Okay, second type of evil. This is part five. Moral evil. What is this? This is the evil that human beings and purely spiritual rational beings do. Evil deeds, wrong choices, vicious behavior, harmful actions, sin. Well, what causes such actions? Well, the individual human being who determines himself or herself to so act. Well, Okay, but what makes such actions evil? Well, they're disordered, defective, misaligned, and malappropriate. Okay, and now we need 
Uh, this is going to take a couple of minutes here. And this is a very famous uh, uh, theme in uh, Augustine, the Ordo Amoris, the order of love. And it starts on the right-hand side here, and we're going to have to truncate this a bit. But we've got uh, God, and then uh, God's creation. And within God's creation, we have uh, my people, uh, my family, I'm just selecting these, and my own self. Okay, now what we have here is a hierarchy of goods. And as you go up the hierarchy, there is an increase in the objective real goodness of what it is we're talking about. So we've got uh, my good, the good of my own self, and then the good of uh, everyone in my family, and then the good of uh, my people, uh, all the people who constitute my people. And in, in some way or another, good is increasing. Okay. Now, uh, this, of course, uh, the creator is the supreme good, absolutely, infinitely good. And uh, goodness admits of degrees. Some things are better than other things. Some things are more real than other things. Uh, that's a related theme here. But uh, what we need is this notion that there is an objective hierarchy of goods. Some things are better than other things. I mean, that's all we need. Some things are better than other things. As a matter of fact. Okay. Now, on the left-hand side, we've got me. And my uh, uh, loves, my uh, will, the dispositions of my will. And the whole point of my existence, or one way of characterizing the whole point of my existence, is for me to orient myself properly to this uh, objective fact. Okay, so uh, am I to love my, my own self? Well, yes, of course. Well, why am I to love my own self? Because I'm good. God created me and everything God creates is good. Okay, am I to love my family? Well, yes, of course. Am I to love my people? Yes, of course. Am I to love God? Yes. Okay, now, my loves have to be properly uh, ordered, properly calibrated, properly aligned with the objective hierarchy of goods. So uh, what does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean that I'm, I, I, you know, everything I do for myself, I just do for my family. He doesn't mean that. What he means is push comes to shove. If I have to forego uh, the pursuit of my own good for the sake of the good of my family, then that's exactly what I have to do. And my will, my loves, have to be uh, oriented to these facts in precisely that way. Okay, or if uh, my people, the demands of my family, uh, uh, that, that we have to forego the, the good of the family. I just read uh, yesterday about this, uh, these five brothers that were lost on that transport ship in World War II? The Sullivan brothers. Okay, and then they, I think the military uh, changed the regulations that uh, family members could not serve in the same unit, you know, same unit after that. But there were five brothers from a family, I think, in Davenport, Iowa. And that, that family, in effect, uh, offered up 
the, the five brothers for the, the, the sake of the people. Okay, so I mean, it was like they, they, they forswore the, the, the good of their own family for the sake of their people. Okay, so I mean, that's a case of sort of properly uh, ordered uh, loves. Okay, does that, does that make sense? I've got to calibrate myself to the facts of the matter. Or you could say this is, you know, what I value, so I, I value this, I cherish this, I value this, I, I value God. It sounds odd putting it that way. But uh, uh, my personal subjective evaluating should line up with the uh, axiological facts of the matter. Okay. So that's uh, uh, Augustine's famous notion of rightly ordered love. Okay, now, God commands us to love God and all of his good creatures, but in the real and proper order, each rational creature must bring itself into proper alignment under the influence of grace. Okay. So, <laughs> well, this is where he's going to analyze moral evil. Part B here. What is moral evil? What is it that makes such actions evil? Well, they're disordered. Moral evil is always a falling away from this proper order. It always consists in choosing a lesser good over a greater good. Whenever anyone chooses wrongly, they're messing up their order of priorities. They're getting their priorities wrong. Okay? The evil in the choice is the inordinate turning to a lesser good. It's the disorienting of the will. What is lacking, remember we said evil is a privation of being? Well, where's the privation here? My will, when I do this, when I choose out of alignment here, my will is privated of proper ordering. And that's the, the, the good, my, my, my will is deprived of that good. The will is deprived of the good of its own proper alignment with real goods. All right. Does that make sense? I think it, 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 it might make more sense if you drop to the bottom of the page. Part E. No one chooses evil for its own sake. All right. Put a circle around that. It's very important. Whenever anyone makes a choice, they are choosing something that in some way or another is good, but it's totally out of, when someone makes an evil choice, the good that they're going after, they're going after in a way that's totally out of alignment with how things should be. Okay, the choice is always for some sort of good or real good. Rational creatures do make evil choices, but they are not choices of evil. Okay, uh, back up now uh, to the uh, paragraph right before that. The original fall, Adam's fault, every subsequent wrongful choice by every uh, rational being consists of this kind of disordered volition. When the fall occurred, okay, this is also part of Augustine's account. When, when Adam fell, human nature was corrupted, and each human being inherited this corrupted nature. When anyone falls in actual sin, human nature is corrupted anew, because then one cannot not choose wrongly. In other words, one is bound in sin. Uh, okay. Oh, uh, uh, the middle paragraph there. The ultimate choice here, 
is between God who causes the objective order of goods and my own self who determines a different order of goods by choosing in a misaligned way. What's the idea there? Well, look, I'm going to start making some choices in my life. I either do it according to the way God has set up or I, I say, well, that's pretty good as far as it goes, but uh, I just want to make, I shift a couple things around here. Okay, I, I know God, you want it done this way, but I've got a different set of priorities. So, what Augustine says, it's in a sense, the ultimate choice is, look, I either do it God's way or I do it my way. Okay, and this is what he, the whole city of God is uh, an account of the history of the human race. He says that all human beings fall into two camps. There are those human beings who uh, try to do it God's way and there are human beings that I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it my way. And he said the whole history of the human race is to be understood as what goes on between these two camps of people. Okay, it's quite, uh, quite an interesting theory of history. But does that make sense about it's either my way or God's way? Uh, and that's how sin is against God and God's will for the creature and in, against God's creation. Okay, now keep going. Okay, remember what we're trying to do? We're trying to explain where evil comes from and how a good God could, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Top of the page. God is not responsible for the existence of moral evil. Okay? Human beings and purely spiritual rational beings are the source, cause, origin of moral evil through the exercise of their free will. They freely choose to act in a way that is out of order and it is in their power to not act in that way. So the buck stops there. Okay. God created these beings with a free will and they determined themselves to act in a way that God didn't want them to act. Now, here comes the lament again from the detractor who formulated the original argument. Why does God, why does the infinitely good and loving God allow such evil deeds to be committed? If God were loving... How, how could a, an infinitely powerful, loving God allow people to do evil things? Because God created rational beings that have a free will so that those creatures would freely choose to love God with all their hearts and more than anything else and all else for his sake. Right? But... Free will entails, say logically entails, the possibility of choosing to love something else in that way. In other words, with all one's heart and more than anything else and all else for its sake. So I either love God with all my heart and more than anything else and all else for God's sake, or I love me. <laughs> and I wish all of you would love me <laughs> that way too. Okay, and this is what he says in the city of God about what the city of man, the city of dis, is uh, alike. Uh, okay, part B here. A world in which there are creatures with free will that are able to freely love God is better than a world in which there's no moral evil because there are no creatures with free will. Okay. And a creation in which there are creatures with free will who actually do choose wrongly is still a better creation than one in which there's no such moral evil because there are no creatures that have free will. 
especially since God wills those fallen creatures to be redeemed from their sins. Okay. O Felix Copa Quae Talem Actantum Meruit Habere Redemptorem. O happy fault that merited such and so great a redeemer. We're going to hear that in 40 days. This is the free will defense. Okay, you can write that in the margin. This is the name uh, that's attached to this part of the Augustinian solution to the problem of evil. It's called the free will defense. Okay. So God brings good out of evil. But note, we've got to be careful here, because yes, oh happy fault, but still, yet, it would have been better had Adam never sinned. Okay, so there's, there's something of a mystery there. The redemption is, is a great good. It's the greatest good in the universe. But still, it would have been better if Adam had never sinned. Okay, and that's true every time anyone sins. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm brought back into God's graces. And that's a tremendous good. But would that I had never sinned. Uh, note also, God could not have created rational beings that could not or simply would not ever choose wrongly. All right, now I have to say this because this is uh, sort of the philosophical theology is getting so hair uh, splitting here, here and just kind of shaving things off very thinly that the detractors will say, well, yes, but a good God would have, could have, a good God would have created beings with free will that could choose wrongly, but in fact never do. Okay, see how it's play it? Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's not possible. Okay, we can get, go into the details of it, but to, or we can leave it to the philosophical theologians to hash it out. Uh, at any rate, that's not a limitation on God's power since such a being is a logical impossibility. So God, compare, God cannot create round squares. But that doesn't limit God's power because there isn't any such thing as a round square. There can't be. A, a round square is a, an impossibility. There's nothing there to create. Okay. All right. That's so got metaphysical evil and the explanation for why God allows it. We have moral evil and the explanation for why God allows it. And now, physical evil. This is the evils that human beings suffer. They undergo, they passively receive evils that are inflicted upon human beings that happens to them. For example, pain, mental anguish, death, insanity, ignorance, error, confusion, disability, incapacitation, debility, decrepitude, sickness, failure. There's a magnificent passage in Augustine. He goes on for four pages talking about, uh, uh, and it's just, it's, uh, uh, it's breathtaking to read it. It's, uh, it's quite something. I mean, he was quite familiar with uh, the evils of the world. And he died in uh, 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 Hippo, uh, when it was under siege. It was a six-month-long siege, and he died during the siege. Uh, the Visigoths uh, had crossed over into North Africa. Okay, now, what makes such occurrences evils that we suffer? Well, they're destructive of human nature, in fact, and or they are contrary to one's will. And we have to make a distinction there, because I may suffer something that's not destructive of my nature, uh, but it's contrary to my will. I don't want it. Okay. Uh, and these things can't be prevented. Okay, I can't just go, stop. Ooh, got a toothache. Stop. Oh, there, it's gone. Okay, I'm not suffering in that case. If instantly it happens to me, I can instantly will it away. All right, so I can't do that. I can't do it at all. Many of these evils suffered by human beings 
are caused by the freely chosen evil actions of other human beings, obviously. Wars and crimes cause many of these evils that we suffer. Many of the evils suffered by human beings are caused by the workings of the system of nature. For example, natural disasters of every sort cause human beings to suffer tremendously. Some of these evils suffered by human beings are caused immediately or directly by God. Okay. God struck dead Uzzah for touching the ark. Remember, the ark was starting to fall. He was, they were told not to touch it. He touched it, and he, God struck him dead. Uh, and Zacharias was struck dumb for doubting. Now, here comes the big one. Why does the infinitely good and loving God permit, allow, or cause such evils to befall his creatures? How could a loving God that's infinitely powerful per- permit this? It doesn't add up. Something's got to give. That's the detractor. Okay, that's the original argument. Now, Augustine's going to lay it out. First, as punishment for evil doing. This is why bad things happen to bad people. See, in a way, there's no problem of evil here. When there's a natural connection between the harm suffered and the harms inflicted, no one's bothered by that. Okay? You got a guy, he was a contract killer for one of the Mexican drug cartels. He's 32 years old. He's already killed 27 people. Did you hear what happened to him? He was gunned down. It's, uh, it's kind of too bad. No, it's not. <laughs> People's, or the, the last two years of the war, Hitler uh, uh, was so stressed out, uh, he had trouble sleeping at night, he'd wake up screaming, he had nightmares every single night. Uh, poor guy. You know, I mean, it's, uh, uh, this doesn't, uh, we, don't, we don't require explanation here. So, I mean, it's, well, yeah, <laughs> that's right. God allows these things to happen because they're the natural punishments for uh, doing things that are wrong. Okay, the uh, thief is robbed, a liar is not believed, a glutton is sickened by overeating. Even when there's no natural connection between the harms inflicted by the evildoer and the harms he suffers, we still think, no problem. Okay, so the professional murderer uh, dies a painful death of cancer. Or the hardened criminal thief is permanently injured in an automobile accident. Okay, hardened criminal, I've just been reading about... uh, book on criminal psychiatry and the criminal psychiatrists define a hardened criminal as a criminal who has committed over a thousand felonies. <laughs> it's like, hello? <laughs> wow. <laughs> They're not caught for a thousand felonies, but uh, uh, these people are uh, quite something. Okay. This is what goes around, comes around. You've heard this expression. Uh, you reap what you sow. Uh, natural sanctions of the natural law and the supernatural sanctions of God's law. Okay, these are punishments for actual sins and for the inherited original sin, which is a standing tendency to privilege oneself over everything else, including God. Okay, now, note, here's a footnote here about Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, they both uh, have this notion of the law of karma. You've heard of karma? Karma is what goes around, comes around, except... It happens from lifetime to lifetime. Now, according to the law of karma, there is, in a sense, no problem of evil. Why? Because everyone is getting exactly what they deserve. If you're suffering in this life, that is precisely because of evil deeds you committed in a previous lifetime. Okay? And if you could see that, everything would perfectly balance. 
Okay, so why does the infinitely loving uh, God allow such creatures to befall, uh, uh, such evils to befall as creatures as punishment, as corrective of evil doings? It's disciplinary, and that's necessary since without harmful consequences, there would be less motivation to avoid wrongdoing. Okay, so suppose whenever you did anything wrong, nothing bad ever happened to anybody for doing something wrong. <laughs> hey, open season. Uh, and we, we say this, so, so how would you like it if someone did that to you? Okay, or what if everyone did that? If everyone did that, then you'd be on the receiving end of what you're doing. Okay, so we, we get the person to stop doing what they're doing by inflicting the harmful consequences of what they're doing back onto them. Okay, this is what it's like, what you're doing to other people. Okay, so God allows evils to befall human beings to correct. As preventative, uh, anticipated possible harmful consequences forestall many an evil deed, and as atoning for evil deeds, wrongful, con- wrongful conduct must be expiated or compensated for in uh, part by suffering comparable harms. This is how we make satisfaction. There was a case uh, 30 years ago, a convicted killer had killed three or four people in Utah, I think, uh, requested the death sentence. And from what I read, he'd said that his mind seemed clear. And he said, this is the only way he'd come to a repentance. And he said, look, this is the only way I can atone for what I've done. Okay. Uh, All right. So that's, uh, we've got four reasons now why uh, the infinitely good and loving God allows such evils to befall his creatures. All right. But why does the infinitely good God allow such evils to befall innocent creatures? When the harms suffered are unrelated to the person's conduct, our sense of justice is outraged. The harms seem to be completely undeserved. Hey, what's going on? As soul-making, okay? This is the second part of the uh, Augustinian defense. He mentions it in passing. It gets developed by uh, Irenaeus, and it's very prevalent. It's a central part of uh, the theodicy in the Eastern Orthodox Christian religion. Uh, the, suffering these evils is necessary for human perfection, growth, and development. All right. No heroic virtue can be acquired unless heroic tribulation is undergone. No pain, no gain. Okay. Cosmologically speaking. Suffering is virtue's opportunity. All right. That's actually a quote from, I think, Seneca, one of the Stoics. Okay. Put a circle around that. That's important because we're on Christian ground now, but it's not occupied exclusively by the Christians. The Stoics would say the same thing. Uh, For example, becoming courageous by exposure to dangers, developing humility by being humiliated. That's a tough one. Acquiring perseverance by suffering long tribulations, toughening up through afflictions, losing egoistic concern by being defeated, by having plans and projects fail, uh, and acquiring self-knowledge and self-control by undergoing trials. See, it's, it's as if uh, I want to have courage, but uh, I'd like to have tremendous courage, but I, I don't want to be in any dangerous situations, okay? I mean, d- danger is too frightening. Uh, but if I could just somehow, if I could avoid being in these frightening, scary situations and uh, somehow be given tremendous courage, that'd be great. Well, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. 
uh, virtues are dispositions to act in certain ways and in certain circumstances and dispositions to react in certain ways to what befalls one. Okay, they involve attitudes toward what one undergoes. I won't have it. I won't be treated this way. That bespeaks a certain attitude. Okay. Reactive dispositions and attitudes toward what happens to one can be controlled and shaped and developed. Okay. Soul making. That's why God, infinitely good God, allows such evils to befall innocent creatures. It still doesn't work. Okay. The pundit's going to come back and say, why does the infinitely good God allow such evils to befall virtuous persons? Their souls are made. What's going on? When the harm is suffered, when the harm suffered is the opposite of the person's conduct, our sense of justice is greatly outraged. The harms and the benefits are grotesquely out of proportion to what the person deserves. The best person should get the best, yet receives the worst. What is going on there? It just doesn't add up. Something's got to give. Okay? As necessary for sanctification. This goes beyond soul-making. The Stoics embrace this notion of soul-making. Now we're moving beyond the Stoic Roman Greek philosophers. For the sake of super-elevating the creature as creature, each human being is a creature, but is destined to live in intimate union with the triune God. Okay. Now, how's this work? We've got to move along here. Such undeserved suffering, right? We're talking about undeserved suffering. It's not deserved. It's undeserved because the person's been living a, a virtuous life. What, what, is it, what does it do? It detaches us from this veil of tears. God wants us to love him more than anything that is created. So our creaturely loves must be continually defeated in order to bring us into proper alignment and pull us out of our over-attachment to creation or a misguided or disordered attachment to creation. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to be attached to creation. Okay? I'm attached. I'm attached. I'm at yes. But those attachments have to be properly ordered. Okay. For building a proper relationship with God. Rightly ordered love in order to enjoy the greatest good that a human being, that a rational being can possibly experience, which is God himself. That's what God wants me to enjoy. That's what God wants all of us to enjoy. But we have to be, we have to be able to enjoy that. And that means we can't be overly attached to created goods. Okay? That's the first part. Second part. If virtue or obedience to God's commands were always rewarded with essentially related benefits then people would tend to not be virtuous for the sake of virtue and would tend to not obey God out of love of God, but for the sake of the benefits. See, it could work to attach the person more firmly to the created goods. They would tend not to be virtuous or obedient in spite of the costs. So this, like, honesty is the best policy. If honesty is the best policy, and every time I'm honest, I get rewarded in some way, then I'm going to be honest for the sake of the rewards. Okay? That's not how it's supposed to work, though. Does that make sense? I think. Okay. Now, there's another part to it. 
if virtue and obedience were always followed by unrelated benefits, does that make sense when I say related benefits and unrelated benefits? All right, uh, then people would tend to regard themselves as the cause of the goods that befall them. Look, suppo- t- take this as the case. Suppose I started noticing that whenever I did something right, I, I get a, a winning lottery ticket. Okay, so, oh, this incident happened at work and there were some issues about who did what and who was responsible for what and boy, I thought I was going to get in trouble. So, I, no, I, 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 I told the truth and on my way home, I stopped at Walgreens. I got a lottery ticket, $1,000 winner right there. And then as I was going back to the car, I saw this woman, this elderly woman. She was having trouble putting her groceries in the car. I went over to help her. I went into the Myers. I bought another lottery ticket. It was a $10,000 winning lottery ticket. Okay, and then... Okay, so keep going. Every single time I do something good, I get these thousand and ten thousand dollar winning lottery tickets. What's that going to do to me? I mean, even if I, you know, suppose that I was, you know, uh, uh, virtuous, uh, you know, uh, you know, all the soul making had been uh, uh, carried out. It was uh, the the problem there is that I would start to regard myself as being the cause of these wild benefits. I start to regard myself as being almost magical. I have this magical power. Look, I can I can make myself win the lottery any time. Need a hand with that here? Okay, the, boom! <laughs> I told you, it's unbelievable. Okay. God does not let the system work that way. Why? Because it would be extremely deleterious to creatures like this. They'd start to think that they, that either that nature was, uh, uh, they had control over nature, or that God was at their beck and call. Okay. I, 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 every time I snap my fingers, God uh, obeys me. Every time I do a good deed, God showers me with benefits. See, it starts to look like I'm working God's program not good because <laughs> it's, it's not true okay so to bring us to fully realize that we are completely absolutely dependent in our being on God our creaturely status must be constantly thrust upon us by severing the connection between a life well lived and a life benefited in every way in this life The better the person is, the greater the danger, therefore the greater the suffering. Job's solution returns. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Note, the imitation of Christ is how each person, as a creature, Christ is human, we're not gods, okay? And we're not God. We're little creatures that are destined to live the inner life of the Trinity. We're destined to transcend, in one sense, all creation. Okay, so both of these things have to be worked. Detach from creation, and don't ever forget that you're a creature. Okay, it ain't over till it's over. The pundit comes back, says, I understand why God allows all these evils to befall people, but why does the infinitely good God allow evils to befall sanctified people? Okay. The soul making is done. The sanctifying is done. And now we have people who still suffer all these natural evils. Well, who's that? Well, Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is most holy, weeps over Jerusalem, weeps for Lazarus, suffers agony in the garden, and finally undergoes the worst treatment. And Mary weeps for her son at the cross. Why does the good God allow 
evils to befall people who are perfectly good. It just doesn't add up. Something's got to give. Okay? And here we're in uh, Christ's territory. We're, uh, it's allowed by God. It's permitted by God because it works as redemptive of other people, of other persons. So in order to alleviate the suffering of others, one takes on their afflictions and suffers their pains in their stead. Okay? So, uh, Maximilian Colby, remember the scene in the concentration camp where they were all brought out because someone had stolen some chickens or something, and they were going to execute... the three people put him in the starvation bunker, and the one fellow that was standing by Maximilian Colby was chosen, and he broke down, started crying, said, I've got a family, blah, blah, blah. So Maximilian Colby said, oh, uh, why don't you let that guy go? I'll, I'll go in his place. Okay. Perfect example of this. Uh, see, the suffering is uh, it, it, it's redemptive of someone else. It redeems somebody else from suffering. Christ takes on the task of bringing to man, human, humankind, the alleviation of the greatest evil, sin and death, and the bestowal of the greatest good, intimate union with God. To do so, he suffers the greatest harms, and those harms are inflicted on him precisely by those for whose sake he takes on the task. Now, here's a curiosity. This kind of suffering is willed. It's intentionally sought after or welcomed when it occurs. Hence, it is not contrary to the will secundum quid, but it is still contrary to the will simplicitare. Now, what's that mean? Well, look at the example of Mary. Mary does not want her son to die. So her son's death is contrary to her will simply. But she does want God's will to be done. And she wants that more than anything else. And since God's will is that her son die, she accepts the death of her son. The greatest good is achieved by undergoing the greatest suffering. Now, if you ask, why does God allow this kind of suffering? You're asking, well, why does God allow himself to undergo this kind of suffering? Why? Well, God is love. And love is self-giving, self-emptying. Okay, And the last note, why does God allow? How can a good God allow evils to befall his creatures? Well, it's going to be compensated for in the next life. The goods to be enjoyed in heaven include all the goods that are foregone in this life. That's part of accidental beatitude. And the goods to be enjoyed in heaven infinitely surpass any measure of evil suffered in this life. So not to worry. Okay? So the problem of evil is solved. (laughs) Well, no. Yet, evil remains a mystery. Okay? First, why do people choose wrongly? Well, sin is ultimately completely incomprehensible. Sin is irrational. An irrational choice is not intelligible. It's not rational. It can't be made sense of. See, why does the person uh, choose this? Well, because it's good. Every choice is for a good. 
Okay, so you can explain the choice in terms of the good that's chosen. But you can't explain the choice in terms of uh, the, the better good that's for God. Did that make any sense? I, th- I think it did. Why choose the lesser good instead of the greater good? Well, there's no explanation for that. Well, that it can't happen. Oh, yes, it can if you have free will. That's precisely what can happen. Free will makes for the possibility of completely unintelligible actions on the part of human beings. Why did I do that? Okay. Once uh, this, uh, some of you know this story, but uh, uh, one time when I was uh, maybe about uh, 14 years old, I, f- I found a, a wooden tennis racket at the tennis court. And it didn't have any strings, but it was a pretty good wooden racket. So I took it home and I was like, you know, I got into the house. I said, hey, uh, mom and dad, look what I found. I found this uh, wooden tennis racket. And my father said, oh, hey, great. We'll take it down to the sporting goods shop and get it restrung. I said, no, 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 I've got, uh, I've got this plan. I want to make something out of it. And, and I, I marched off down to the basement and I got the saw out and I, I sawed the head uh, off of the tennis racket. And I remember standing, I was thinking like, what, why did I do that? I mean, it was, I, I, I had the two pieces of this perfectly good tennis racket in my hand and it was gone. I, I have no idea. Uh, it was just this, this third, this, this blank uh, appeared uh, in reality. So at any rate, I don't know if it was a sin, but it was completely incomprehensible. Okay, so uh, why do people choose wrongly? That remains a mystery. Second, and I think this is important, the second uh, point here. The theodicy, Augustine's theodicy, what it gets, it gets refined by Thomas Aquinas. I've got some books up here. Uh, those of you uh, perhaps saw Eleanor Stump at uh, Aquinas College a couple of years ago, she has come out with, uh, she's a convert to Catholicism, and she's probably the top uh, uh, philosopher, apologist for the Catholic Christian faith right now. She has a a 500-page Wandering in Darkness. It's a a development of Thomas Aquinas' development of Augustine's theodicy, and it is absolutely magnificent. If you have... uh, uh, a year to read, uh, uh, you can work through it. It's really first rate. But all of these theodicies, she makes this point repeatedly. She says, this is theoretical, it's abstract, it's generic, it's speculative. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's, it's a theory, okay? And that's not what suffering is, okay? And that's not the same as what the, the, the thinkers, uh, the theologians call it compassionating wisdom, of knowing the how and why of the agonies of this particular person right here, right now, or being that particular person right here, right now. I mean, this happened in the course of my drafting this over this week. Uh, it happened twice, actually. I'm uh, working away, I'm working away on this, and uh, something happened. I mean, something bad happened. And I was like, you know, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, who's in charge? What's going on here? Why, you know, why, God, why do you let these things happen to me? And blah, 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 blah. And then uh, it was quite something because I realized after I calmed down that uh, what, what the evil that had befallen me was uh, exactly the, the type of thing that I was writing about. It was, uh, okay, uh, it was, uh, illustrative examples here. So taking the theory and putting it uh, into practice. But uh, those of you who are in the helping professions know that when you're with someone or those of you who have suffered horribly know that uh, uh, the, the, the theory is one thing and the actual experience is, uh, is, is something else. 
And it's hard to remember when you're going through it. Okay, third problem here. Even though they're blessed in the next life, why do the innocents suffer and die before any soul making can occur? So we're talking about little ones. Before any detachment from this life is even necessary. Why doesn't God just bless them in the next life and in this life? Okay. By a three-year-old. A three-year-old dies of, of cancer. And it's, it's, it's just a, the little thing is in agony. There's no soul making. Okay. Fourth. Why does this person suffer so horribly? Why does this person suffer so horribly? And not that person standing right next to him. Why this one? Why that one? Why not that one? Why not this one here? Okay. Now, Augustine actually has a response to both these questions. With respect to three, he says, this serves to detach us from this world. Okay. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty stern stuff. But, uh, and it looks as though the suffering of this little one is being used as a means to help other people detach from this world. Uh, response to number four, we're not to inquire too deeply into the ways of God. Okay. Sort of like the Calvinists say. So it's like the Calvinists were not completely off base. Okay. There, there is an element, a strong element of truth in what they're saying. It's presumptuous to want to know exactly why everything is going the way it's going. What about the pain of animals? Could not God have made a world without animal suffering? Response? No. End of issue. Suffering destroys some people, and they die in agony cursing God. Okay? I've read, uh, it's a very disturbing uh, account of a priest who was ministering to a woman in a rural area. Uh, this was 50 years ago that this was happening. Uh, she was uh, uh, in labor, and uh, she didn't make it. She died uh, in childbirth, and she and the baby both died in childbirth, and she died uh, cursing God at the top of her lungs. Yeah, it's very frightening to read, and the priest was scrambling. He was trying everything he could to uh, help her, to get to her. We don't know what went on inside of, you know, between her and God and her soul, but uh, did God push the person too far. Okay. Now, Paul's response is that, no, this never happens. God never pushes anyone too far. If suffering serves such good purposes and God brings good out of evil, the evils we undergo, then why should we bother to alleviate any suffering in the world? Doesn't alleviating suffering then interfere with God's designs? Response, first, compare. Well, if God brings good out of the evil we do, why bother avoiding doing evil? Hey, it's open season. It's not, okay? God tells you not to do these things. Second response. God does not allow to occur all of the possible evils we could suffer. Now, this, this, this sounds so trite and facile. It could always be worse. Okay? So you break your leg. Uh, 
Actually, my high school, the secretary that worked in the principal's office, she had a cast on her leg for over a year. She'd broken her leg in something like 23 places in a skiing accident. Okay. It could always be worse. Okay. I mean, saying that to her is going to get your face slapped. Uh, so it's, it's facile, it's trite, but it's true. Okay. If you think, you know, how many possible evils are there that human beings could suffer that they don't suffer? Okay. One way in which God prevents people from suffering all of the evils they could suffer is precisely by prompting people to act so as to alleviate the sufferings of others. Okay. God acts through secondary causes. One of the, way God, one of the ways in which God orchestrates the world is by prompting people to act in certain ways. And one of the ways God prompts people to act is to alleviate the suffering of others. Okay, so if I don't alleviate this person's suffering, and it's God's will that this person's suffering be alleviated, it'll be alleviated in some other way. I just won't act as God is prompting me to act. If someone willfully refrains from alleviating the suffering of a person, then that one, that one person could very well be acting contrary to God's designs for that other person and for himself or herself. Did that last sentence make sense? Okay. Uh, that's it. We can end with this prayer of Augustine. Uh, some of you are probably quite familiar with it. It'll take us a minute to get through it. Uh, Before thine eyes, O Lord, we bring our sins and we compare them with the stripes we have received. If we examine the evil we have wrought, what we suffer is little, what we deserve is great. What we have committed is very grievous, what we have suffered is very slight. We feel the punishment of sin, yet withdraw not from the obstinacy of sinning. Under thy lash our inconstancy is visited, but our sinfulness is not changed. Our suffering soul is tormented, but our neck is not bent. Our life groans under sorrow, yet amends not indeed. If you spare us, we don't correct our ways. If you punish us, we can't endure it. In time of correction, we confess our wrongdoing. After thy visitation, we forget that we've wept. If thou stretchest forth thy hand, we promise amendment. If thou withholdest the sword, we keep not our promise. If thou strikest, we cry out for mercy. If thou sparest, we again provoke thee to strike. Here we are before thee, O Lord, confessedly guilty. We know that unless thou pardon, we shall deservedly perish. Grant then, O Almighty Father, without our deserving it, the pardon we ask. Thou who madest out of nothing those who ask thee, through Christ our Lord, amen. Deal not with us, O Lord, according to our sins, neither reward us according to our iniquities. Let us pray, O God, who by sin art offended and by penance pacified, mercifully regard the prayers of thy suppliant people and turn away the scourges of thy wrath, which we deserve for our sins, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Mike. Good. Thanks. Okay. Good.